What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 552 with my guest, Jesse Mangan. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the bullshit rattling around in our skulls. Uh, this show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. Uh, the website for this show is metalpod.com. There's a form there if you want to connect with people over specific issues or just post what's uh, what's going on with you. Um, there's also an area that you can discuss specific episodes of the podcast. You can post um, creative stuff. Some people post their poetry. So, uh, yeah, go check it out. Um, somebody texted me, a guy that I went to uh, school with, and he texted me just the most ignorant thing about undocumented immigrants. And of course, it referred to them as illegal immigrants. And it said that 90% of the crime in Los Angeles is committed by them. And I just felt so hopeless and yeah, there's anger, but it, you know, a lot of times anger is because you're surprised by something. This doesn't surprise me. There's so much propaganda out there that's that's untrue. And I just texted him back and said, you know, but please stop sending me this this garbage. I live in Los Angeles, and this is not true. And it was one of those things uh, he sent where it's like a computer voice reading the facts and said that this was from the Los Angeles Times. And, I mean, a lot of the media on both sides is garbage, is lazy journalism, and contributes to the division that we're experiencing. But, I mean, this was above and beyond. And, uh, it you know, one of the things I've learned trying to stay sober is that I have to surrender to the things that I can't control. I have to accept 
reality. You know, that doesn't mean that I can't work for change, but there are things that are beyond our control. And this is one of them. I can't control what garbage people listen to and believe and, and spread. And I told this guy, I said, you know, I love you, man, but take me off this text chain if you're going to send stuff like this. And he apologized and, and he said, keep loving me. And it reminded me that we can still give and receive love while disagreeing with people. And this guy's lonely. This guy's isolated. And a lot of people don't even respond to his, his texts. And it was just, it was, I guess, a really bittersweet moment because I had to find a way to surrender and to stay in touch with love while also having boundaries and not co-signing someone's bullshit. But anyway, I'm sure a lot of you are experiencing similar things. You know, and one of the things when somebody sends me, you know, something that's really just total propaganda and inflammatory bullshit is I immediately go to the catastrophizing place of everybody is eventually going to think like this guy or enough people that it's going to ignite a civil war and I'm going to lose everything that I've worked for and I'm going to be sweating in a tent in dirty underwear fending off attackers with a butter knife and you know it i i can't go to that place it it affects me when i go to that place i think that's our way of trying to control things by predicting them and uh it just ruins the the present moment i've been dealing with numbness lately and um you know, sometimes it's depression, which I experience as, you know, melancholy or sadness. Sometimes it's anxiety that makes it difficult to leave the house or live an expansive life. But, you know, I did the stuff that I'm supposed to do. I took people's phone calls. I tried to be of service. I made one phone call and opened up to somebody about how I was feeling. But I'm so afraid people are going to tell me what to do. Um, or they're going to question you know, the way I'm living my life uh, in a way that's that's judgmental. So I'm trying to get outside more, and I'm trying to be vulnerable, but sometimes it's just fucking hard. But overall, <laughs> that, other than imagining civil war and feeling uh, like a piece of styrofoam, I'm doing great. Uh this is from the Ask Paul Anything survey. Uh, and Horse's Ass asks, what three nonfiction books would you say have made the most impact in your life? That is actually an easy question. Uh, A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. Uh, Silently Seduced, which is about covert incest by uh, Kenneth Adams. And I've mentioned that one a lot. And then support group literature, you know, like uh, 12-step literature, stuff like that. These are some loves from a woman who calls herself mom, a.k.a. slave to my children. And she writes, I love it when I have to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and I look at the clock and still have a couple of hours to sleep before I have to get up for the day. Oh, that is such a good one. I love when me and my boyfriend get time alone at the end of the day and laugh our asses off about a memory or a funny meme. 
I love when my kids are happy and tell me that they love me. I love feeling motivated to do household chores. Holy shit, what is that like? I love watching pimple-popping-slash-extraction videos. That one I cannot understand, but uh, God bless you. Have at it. I love when my boyfriend kisses me hello and goodbye every time we leave one another. And I love at the end of the day when my kids are asleep and the house is clean and I get a couple hours of peaceful silence. Thank you for those. Those are awesome. Awesome? Yes, it's a new word. Uh, This is from Ask Paul Anything. And Michelle um, writes, uh, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder in my 20s. It's taken me decades to even begin to figure myself out. I'm a hot mess, but I'm finally able to accept who, what, where, and how I am. But it's a battle, as you are well aware of. I've been a mental health advocate for years. For instance, I've run the Boston Marathon for suicide prevention twice, raising over 20K to support the organization. I've always been pretty vocal about my mental illnesses and how they affect me, but always after the fact. During my, quote, episodes, I hide like a dog with the added fun of ruminating myself into a hole. I'm vocal afterward to explain what shit I fell in and how I got out of it. This past year, I was able to start my own business, which I never thought with all of my issues I could ever do. Now I have a website where I sell clothes with designs I've created to empower others to talk about mental health. It's for profit, but I donate some of that to NAMI uh, annually. That's the National Alliance for Mental Illness. I featured writers uh, who I was able to do, I featured writers who I was able to do this with Uh, the support of a mentor through a state program for entrepreneurs who are disabled. I can tell you that I plan to never write another business plan, but boy, did I learn a lot, and I'm grateful for that. The question I have for you, how do you handle folks who come to you for advice? I don't give advice. I tell my stories, what I've done, how I felt, and what's helped me, but I've never told anyone what they should do. That's dangerous territory. I ask you this because you've put your shit right out there, too. I have a following, not anywhere quite as large as yours, of course, but I have supporters who have been following me for years. Somehow, some of these folks think I'm the all-knowing on mental illness because I talk about my own and encourage others to do the same. I get texts and messages and calls such as, my brother's son's best friend is having a meltdown and we don't know what to do. I'm afraid he's going to kill himself. What do I do? This is an example, but they are just as ridiculous. I love that folks reach out and talk to me about their experiences, but I cannot fix anything for anyone. I once had someone text me to say their son was in the ER after drinking bleach. They wanted to know how long it would take for the medicine, quote, medicine, to work once he started taking it. Um, what? If you've read this much, wow, that's surprising, and thank you. I'd love to know how you handle things like this. I have my I am not a doctor response, but some folks actually get frustrated with me because I can't help them. Thank you for that, and those are such great questions. And um, I I think I'm kind of like you in that, first of all, I want to say that every person, to some degree or another, is different. There's a lot of universal feelings that we have and and solutions and support that we can go to for help. But like you, um, the the place that I always go to first if 
I think it's relatable, is sharing my story and my experience and what worked for me. Um, but the, one of the reasons why I started this podcast is not to be the solution for people's struggles, but to be the cheerleader to encourage people to go to the solutions, to therapy, to support groups, to finding a network of uh, support people in their lives. Because we, I'll just speak for myself, I can't do this alone. I can't manage the brain that brought me into the places that I need help. Uh, And so I need that feedback. And yeah, I don't like anybody trying to fix me. Um, and we can't fix each other. We cannot. But I think we can, we can help each other and we can build positive energy by loving each other and listening and supporting and empathizing. So, um, there, here's a, a couple of surveys that I think highlight how it can be kind of difficult sometimes to know how to respond. Jelly Bean asks, how can I get over my ex? It's been over two years. I just found out that he is married and has a baby, but I'm still in love with him and have always had the thought somewhere in my mind that we would get back together. What can I do? This is a classic example of find help. This is a big issue. It's complicated. It's usually rooted in some kind of childhood trauma some type of neglect or abuse from a caregiver where we're, you know, in love with somebody who's available, who's dishonest. Uh, And a book that I recommend is Facing Love Addiction by P.M. Melody. Um, And the, the thing that I would share is that we cannot change reality. We cannot change how other people feel about us their morals, how they decide to treat us, but we can find a way to cope with reality. And that, for me, is what recovery is all about, setting boundaries, saying, what's healthy for me? Um, Because so many of us will burn our lives to the ground trying to change reality instead of finding a way to cope with it. Clark's Third Law asks, how do I overcome suicidal thoughts? I feel bad. I want to stop having them. At times when I'm depressed, I count my lack of achievement, which makes me think of getting a gun from my local gun shop to shoot myself with. It is fucking pathetic to think that way. I feel like ending my life is mercifulness to myself, though. You don't know my life or my family. First of all, I want to say I'm so sorry that you are struggling. And This is an example where this is way, way beyond my ability to weigh in other than to say, please go see a professional. Please reach out. Call a suicide hotline. See a therapist. Do not try to handle this on your own. Um, Yes, I have been suicidal before. I have thought about it. Um, And I eventually got so tired of thinking about killing myself 50 times a day that I went and got help. And that's what it took for me. Um, But man, I'm sending you some love and good vibes. This is from the love survey filled out by Nancy Goodspeed. And she writes, I love when I pull a bag out of the garbage, a 
a bag of garbage out of the trash can and there's no juice dripping. It's a clean, dry pulp. God, is that a fucking great one. Oh, it's so true. Oh, I hate when you pull one out and, and juice has been dripping and you, and you know that it's just a day or two away from Maggot City. Have you guys ever rented in Maggot City? Very affordable. Uh, and her other love, I love looking at the teeny tiny segments or pods in grapefruit that hold the juice. That is such a great one. I love when they're, they're big and they're just bursting with juice. And you put that, that grapefruit spoon in it and it just sprays grapefruit juice all over the place. Ah, thank you for that. Dabbling in entomology, or is this entomophagy, which I think means love of spiders? No, I don't know. I love pretending that the spiders I find here have to pay rent in the form of catching bugs, but I usually give them the first month's rent free and catch one for them. And as long as they have bugs in their webs and they don't get pissy about me occasionally cleaning out their dirty ones, we're good. Oh, thank you for that. We are sponsored this week, as always, by BetterHelp Online Therapy. I've been using it for years, and I love not having to leave the house. Um, I love the, the wisdom and uh, support that I get from my therapist. Uh, I'm just a big fan of it, and I think it's a great option, too, for people that live in the boonies where it's too far to go do in-person therapy. Uh, in my opinion, it's affordable, and uh, I think you should check it out. Uh, go to betterhelp.com mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from the podcast, and then just fill out a questionnaire, and if they have a counselor they think is a good fit for you, they will match you up with one and you can experience a free week of counseling. Um, they are licensed in all 50 states, and you need to be 18. And then uh, finally, this is from the Back in Time slash In the Moment survey, and Cheapskate writes to the question, share a moment or moments in your life where you wish you could go back in time and say something to yourself. Uh, and he writes, I could would go back to when I was in and around the age of eight to nine, when my dad would say to me after one of my hockey games, I don't know why we spend so much money on new skates for you when you spend half of your shift laying on the ice. I would tell my younger self that it's okay to have feelings, that it's okay to tell somebody that they hurt your feelings, that it's okay to ask people for help, that it's okay to stand up to non-constructive criticism from your father. That it's okay to explain to your father that he hurt your feelings. I would tell the younger me that it's okay if I don't want to play hockey anymore, if I don't want to. I would explain to younger me that his father loves him with all of his heart, but that he doesn't know how to show it properly because his father never showed him. I would tell younger me about all the struggles that his father had to face as a young boy because his father was an alcoholic with untreated mental illness. I would tell him that his father, while not perfect, is trying his best to be a good father and break the cycle of alcoholism and violence that plagues the family. I would tell him that his father will eventually figure things out and that he could help his father to achieve that sooner by opening his heart and helping to lead his father down the path of love. 
I would explain how much his mother loves him, even though she never expresses it. I would explain to him how cold and indifferent his grandmother was to his mom. That his mom is doing the very best she can with what she has. I would explain to him that his mother never feels well, but she works really, really hard to keep six kids and the household going. I would tell him that he is a wonderful, curious, intelligent, and creative person. I would tell him that it's okay to be yourself, no matter who that self is. I would tell him that he deserves to love and to be loved. I would tell him that the world will have its struggles, but it will get better. I would tell him that if he stays true to himself, he will continue to be a wonderful person. I would tell him that he will face some struggles along the way, but he's strong and caring and will get through it and will live a meaningful and happy life. I would tell him that I love him. I just wanted to get the fuck away from my life. You know, I couldn't have felt any lure. Grief, guilt, shame. Why wasn't I born a girl? There's a switch that gets flipped in my head. I'm supposed to be a girl. I experience being treated like an animal. How can a just God... I have a vomit fetish. ...let humans do this to each other? Help! I fucking flew over the cuckoo's nest. My wife's losing it. I thought it was all about me. I don't know what to do. I would have committed suicide if I could have watched my funeral. A Polaroid I found of my mother um, naked in a dentist chair. And my body doesn't quite... I think I did eight days in L.A. County Jail. ...fit how I see myself. What was it all for? Why are my friends dead? Everything that I did, there's a comfort in the scars for me, was in service of OCD. You've already had all the paper cuts. Step away from the paper. It's really hard to see the picture when you're inside the frame. You know, it takes a larger view to see your life. Just actually have somebody listen to you. Yeah. And I got up and got my tooth and left. <laughs> I'm here with Jesse Mangan, who uh, is a listener, and you sent me an email, and the broad strokes of the issues that you deal with are uh, eating disorders. Yeah. How would you How would you describe uh, your your How old, Jesse? I'm 35. 35 years old, obviously male, and um, a lot of people think that men don't deal with eating disorders. What What would you say to them? Uh, I would say it just manifests differently. Um, men are encouraged to be to be very focused on their bodies for specific reasons, for, for muscle, tone, or whatever. So if you're exercising, you're a man, you must be doing something right. And when did it, when did it start with you? Well, I think uh, the underlying anxiety probably manifested uh, around six or seven. My first full-blown anxiety attack, I was seven years old. What, what do you remember about it? I was at a gymnastics summer camp, probably a week-long camp, and... By your own choice? Yeah, I was interested in it. Yeah, I was interested okay. in gymnastics. I just liked playing around, rolling on things. And my parents enrolled me, and I was I was chubby for my age. Um, and kids were teasing me about it. They were really... <laughs> they were very harsh about my weight. And I remember one day walking from the gymnasium to lunch... And for whatever reason, something someone said hit me, and I, the wind was just knocked right out of me. They didn't physically hit me, but I, I couldn't breathe. I collapsed against a tree, and I remember a counselor came over and just started breathing with me. I didn't know what it was, but... Pretty intuitive for, uh, for that counselor to... Yeah, uh, I assume they have to go through some sort of training or something. Did, did it help? what the counselor had you do? 
Yeah, it was, um, it helped me get back up on my feet. It was a frightening experience because I had no idea what was going on. All I knew was my world had stopped and I couldn't. Were you having trouble breathing? Yeah, I, uh, I was. I mean, describe the physical symptoms that you were, you were experiencing. At first, my breathing came, it was shallow. I couldn't really get enough air to maintain, like walking. And then emotional spikes happened. I started crying and I wasn't clear on why. And I started panicking because I couldn't breathe. And I uh, leaned up against a tree and then just slid down to the, the ground and kept really just shuddered, really short, shallow breaths barely able to to really maintain myself that's so sad for a kid that's so young to that he couldn't wait until college when everybody else (laughs) breaks down yeah started young i started the misery young um so the seven years old anxiety is manifesting i don't know what it is i don't remember ever talking to my parents about it i I guess i always assumed they knew but i don't know what was your family life like what was your what was that environment like where you grew up i would say it was it was relatively safe, dysfunctional for sure, but relatively safe. Um, my parents are sort of polar opposites personality-wise. The father's big, strong, stoic. Uh, mother's just excessively emotional. Um, I love them both, and they're <laughs> amazing people, but it was a, uh, an environment of mixed messages. Our mother tried to make us her best friends, and our father didn't want to talk to us. I relate very deeply yeah. Very, very deeply. It's uh, it's hard not to f- to feel that anxiety because, for one, you feel the tension between them that they don't love each other or aren't crazy about each other's company, and then you, because the father isn't supportive of the mother, you feel like I'm all she's got emotionally, so I need to try to keep her calm and to keep her happy is that ringing a bell for you absolutely yeah 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 i was i was terrified of my father but the only thing that would really get me to do anything to stand up to him would be if he was assaulting my mother verbally like there was no physical abuse but he definitely made her cry on many occasions what was that like watching that anger i was so angry all the time i didn't know what to do with it what are the things that he would say to her it was um it wasn't a, a verbal assault in the sense that he was insulting her it was more that she would bring up something some issue and he would get very specific and reserved about what he said and he viewed emotion as sort of a flawed form of logic so as she was trying to discuss with him or have a conversation he would basically just um, lawyer her into a position where oh she was diminished and she, he, the conversation couldn't continue because clearly she wasn't capable. He had established his case. I used to be him. I used to be him with my wife. I was because emotions brought up that that feeling that I was going to be smothered, that it, I was going to be overwhelmed by somebody who's, you know, an emotional raw nerve like my mom was. And my my wife would always say, I'm not your fucking mother. I'm not your fucking mother. But I would go to this place where I would just get very, very calm and my voice would. And, and I thought yeah. that meant I wasn't being a dick because I wasn't yelling, but it would all be about logic. And I didn't understand that people just need to share their emotions. And it's not necessarily about 
fixing something. It's about that person being being felt and heard and seen. But you can't tell that to somebody who hasn't opened up their own door inside their own soul and begun to look in because that's that's terrifying. What was your dad's uh, upbringing like? He had a very strained relationship with his father. From what I'm told, he literally didn't speak to his father for his senior year of high school. Um, and his mother was, my grandmother, was very attentive. She just really wanted to take care of both the men in her life without them interacting with each other. Mm. So he had a very strained relationship with his father. I thought his father was a dick. Um, because he used to, my mother's an anthropologist and she focuses on Native American studies. Mm -hmm. And on Thanksgiving, my grandfather would say that, well, what's the big deal? The Native Americans weren't using the land. Why not take it? He would bring up that argument. And I remember being a kid and recognizing that is wrong to do at a family gathering. Wow. Wow. So you, you grew up with this feeling that you, you've, you've got a burden more than just your own emotions to worry about that you've got to worry about your mom is that fair that's fair to say yeah um or that you can't be that that she can't handle you falling apart i, I mean, would tell me what it is that yeah. that you you how you felt towards your mother uh so by by the age of eight, I was contemplating suicide. Uh, the first time I did it, I I took a scarf and I tied knots in the scarf and I started, I was just constricted around my neck until I would come to the point of passing out. There's something so fucked up about somebody attempting suicide before they can spell it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there is. It was a, a cry for attention, but I, I didn't know how to make it work. And... My my mother, I, I realized, uh, very expressive, and at a certain point, I realized I could get attention by not reciprocating affection. I refused to tell her that I loved her for a couple years. To get attention? In hindsight, I recognize that, yeah. I. Did you want her attention? I wanted it to mean something. Because she gave me so much attention, she would say the words all the time, and my father would say nothing. So there was an intellectual battle. I thought if I could rationalize what these words mean, if I could really get her to explain rather than just say I love you, then maybe it'll mean something more. And maybe I'll be on the level of my father. I'll be able to understand things intellectually. So you wanted quality attention, not just attention. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of kids don't understand that I didn't understand that I wanted to be seen I thought I'm loved because my mom is hovering around me you know commenting on everything I do that must be love I must be an asshole for not wanting for not wanting that but it sounds like you um, you just wanted a different a different kind of um, a different kind of thing talk talk some more about that I wanted someone to notice how much pain I was in and I didn't know how to say it. I didn't know that every, I didn't know that everyone else didn't feel the same way. Did your parents know that you tried to kill yourself with the scarf? Or, no, no, I, I, I brilliantly did it while no one was home. And so I did it until basically I started passing out and, and I you collapsed got around a couch and took it off. You got scared. Yeah. Quitter. 
<laughs> baby. Yeah, yeah. So I got better at it. What do you? What do you? You know, even though I'm I'm joking right there. What what comes up when you think about eight year old Jesse doing that? It was oddly some of the happier times of my life. How it, so? It was before I recognized. Um, it was before I recognized how far I had to fall. It was um, it was a very emotional reaction. And I think something about this dichotomy of intellect and emotion made the the depth to which I brought myself so much worse because I was able to rationalize it. I I tried to be robotic. I tried to shut all that emotion off. And for me, that was restrict, restricting everything I ate, controlling my body. If I could do that, then I would have everything under control. Oh, that makes sense. I mean, sense in a fucked up way. <laughs> that, that that makes sense in terms of the, you know how our brain works. Yeah. How'd that turn out? Uh, I was really fucking good at being anorexic, which... Um, when did you start? When I was nine years old, uh, my, my doctor told me I had to lose weight. I was on the fast track to obesity. I took it very seriously. Um, I, I asked my father what I should do, and he had no idea, so he just said push-ups, sit-ups, something like that. And I took it to heart. I started every night, push-ups, sit-ups. I started skipping meals. Um, Did your parents say anything when you started skipping meals? No. My mother heard about it eventually because at school I was starting to uh, basically lose consciousness at a certain point. I, I lost 20 pounds in a month of, at nine years old. Wow. Yeah. Fair to say you have an addictive personality? It's fair to say, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so she noticed it, but um, as far as they were concerned, it was sort of curtailed when I started... Uh, sort of plateauing with my weight but there was one um there was one incident before that which i never discussed with my mother which was after this doctor told me i needed to lose weight i went to the our kitchen and i took out a steak knife and i started uh, cutting the fat on my my stomach and my father walked in and, and caught me um and so he took me outside and talked to me for 20 minutes he has a, he's a master's degree in child psychology so he talked to me for 20 minutes. Well, let's just pause for a second and let that sink in. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, so he talked to me for about 20 minutes, and then I uh, I said, I need to go watch some cartoons. I think it's, I don't want to miss my cartoons, and he let me go. And we never discussed it again. Were you trying to slice the fat off of your body? Were you slicing skin off, or were you? was it just kind of a, a, a help paint a picture for me of what you were actually doing so it was very specifically a serrated knife because i was sawing i had started sawing and i probably just a few layers of skin i, I got to the point where you start seeing white peeling on the, on the top of the skin and that's when my father walked in the kitchen wow what do you think or feel when you recall that <laughs> i feel betrayed in a sense what the fuck? Why wouldn't, why wouldn't something like that get me proper attention? Yeah, I feel angry and betrayed. So, uh, so that was around the time when I started skipping meals exercising a lot 
And uh, by the time I was probably 10, it sort of uh, calmed down for a bit. Um, but then once I hit middle school, bullying started again and everyone gets bullied. Uh, but for me, it... I Were you being bullied around something other than your weight? Because you had lost the weight now? Uh, yeah, I was being bullied for just being weird. Yeah, yeah It was uh, inherited in some respects from my brother, who was also really weird, um, just being an outcast. I hung out mostly with, with women, and uh, there was one particular boyfriend of a girl I hung out with who would, uh, in school, and I would open up my locker to go in to get books, he would run by and slam the door in my face, the locker door. And I was choked a few times by people. Um, I was pushed around. So there's, there's certainly worse bullying events, but to me, I just took it all silently. And uh, the anger just built and built. And all along, were you controlling your, restricting your food? No, there were a few years, probably between 10 and 14, where it was relaxed. And what was your coping mechanism for your emotions then? I didn't have one. I I started bringing the anger home. My brother and I started getting to, getting into physical fights. Is your brother older or younger? He's three years older. Yeah, uh, just the two of you. There's us. Um, I have a younger sister, and then I have an older half sister. Who who um, was previously married? No, um, my mother. When she was in college, she got pregnant, and the the father didn't want to marry her. So mm. she left school and had a child in secret, gave it up for adoption. And then when I was about 10, I found out uh, I had a sister out there somewhere. She contacted us because she was having headaches, and they thought it might be genetic. And I found out I had an older sister. How much older? She's about eight or nine years. And did she come live with you, or...? No, we were in Massachusetts. Uh, she was in Ohio, but mm -hmm. uh, she had just graduated from high school and was coincidentally going to be a counselor at a camp in Massachusetts. So within a few months of getting letters from her, we met her in person. So you and your brother are starting to get into it Yeah, between 10 and 14. And then what changes when you're 14? Uh, when I was 14, the, the bullying continued and then I, I broke a school record for push-ups, which just during one of those health fitness mm -hmm. tests. And after that, um, everyone just left me alone. It was really? Like, yeah. How many did you do? 108. That's a lot of push-ups. I was very obsessive about, about it. What did you feel when you broke the record? Uh, I felt good, but I wasn't really conscious of it. It was more like... Um, it was just a thing. It was just a thing I did. I didn't really think this was something that would get me attention, but it did. Everyone stopped harassing me. They left me alone. And so I thought this must be my chance. I'm going to be with the popular kids. No, I, my depression got much worse after that. Can continue talking about that. I uh, was unable to really hold friendships, I think. I think... I've always felt dishonest, like manipulative, uh, because I have to pretend I, I can't that you're not feeling the way you're feeling inside. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm frightened of my anger and it's always there. And as, as a teenager and realizing if I can break a school record, 
I must be capable of doing some some harm, and that frightens me. What were the things that you fantasized, ways that you fantasized about letting your anger out? Uh, I used to imagine taking metal hooks and then just impaling them in parts of my skin and somehow hoisting that skin off, just pulling on them until the skin would rip off. You know, other people describe that, people that fill out the surveys describe that. I did not know that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I've read many surveys where people want to slice parts of their bodies off. They want to slice their, their fat, they say, off. Um, they want to put hooks uh, into themselves. Uh, yeah, they want to feel, uh, they want to puncture their skin and, and feel pain and, I guess, punish themselves. I don't know. I'm not sure what it is that they want, but it's a fantasy that they have about abusing their their bodies. And I'm talking about outs, outside of the people that cut and, and stuff like that. Um, what does that make you feel when when you know that somebody else thinks or feels that? Because uh, you look really surprised when I shared that with you. I haven't told anyone about that specific fantasy. Uh, I'm, I'm shocked. It's comforting. Yeah, it's comforting. It was something that calmed me at the time. And I assumed I must be crazy for imagining this. No, you know, the phrase that comes to mind is you were reacting normally to an abnormal environment, an environment where you weren't loved or seen or, or felt. And that that's, if I achieve anything with the podcast, my hope is that people can stop thinking of themselves as abnormal and start understanding that that most of us are you know first of all i don't believe there is a normal um but the, but we're, that we're not the walking crazy genetic mess that we think we are and for me that was one of the uh the biggest struggles is going it alone developing this eating disorder not knowing what it was and afterwards i was diagnosed at 19 and afterwards i found out it runs rampant through my family i was the only guy who ever acknowledged it but it was your mom, mom no my her 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 sister's family members uh certainly depression and anxiety and then specifically eating disorders all throughout the family so how did the food restricting start did that start at 14 it started at nine, uh, and well, then you had the break. break. But when it started back up at fourteen, had it progressed, or did it kind of pick up where it picked up before with just skipping meals? So at fourteen, it manifested more strongly with exercise. Uh, I increased sit-ups and push-ups. Um, by the time I was probably seventeen, it was at least six hundred uh, crunches a day, and then somewhere around two hundred push-ups. But it wasn't the number so much as I hated doing it. I just, I just hated them. The idea, I knew I had to do it. And my, my family saw me doing crunches like on the living room floor and I would cry. I would start crying while doing this and no one ever said anything. That's unfucking believable Did they ever ask, why are you crying? No, later on when I asked them, they said they assumed I was just doing it to be fit and that it, it was good. But why would you be crying? <laughs> I think that, it's that's... that male mentality of if he must be like no pain, no gain. He must really be 
putting himself into that. Wow. Wow. Um, so did it get you attention then, being so physically fit? Or did you still feel like an outsider? I never showed anyone how how fit I was. I I didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't take my shirt off. Uh, so it was this secret. It was an odd thing to do for attention because I never showed anyone. You know, my thought on it is that you weren't doing it for attention, that you it was a way of you to punish yourself. It was a way for you to, like you, like you were saying before about the control, that this is, I can... I can, here's something I can, I have control over and here's a way for, for me to also punish myself. Um, that's, that's my two cents on, um, that it just happened to be exercise that had nothing to do with the results. Cause you didn't really care about the results of it. Did you, or did you? I was never aware of the results. I've seen pictures of myself at that age and not recognized who I was because I always assumed there was all this extra weight and in the pictures there isn't i don't really recognize myself do you have body dysmorphia uh yeah i've been diagnosed with it it it's weird because it changes and it manifests throughout time like as you get older but it's certainly there how does it manifest as you get older it uh well i, I would say with recovery more when you actively try to get better it has highs and lows for me the highs and lows are more acute they can almost turn on a dime I, my ego can be high. I can look in the mirror and think, all right, maybe, maybe I'm okay. And within seconds, it can go the other way. And I've clearly made the worst mistake of my life and I'm worthless. Isn't that funny? Isn't that amazing? When my depression lifted, um, I found parts of my body so much less hateful. You know, I used to hate the shape of my head. And after I got sober, I was like, my head's not that, it's big, but it's not like that oddly shaped. I used to think it, it was just, it was weird, you know, I would obsess about trying to get my hair just right so that you couldn't, because the, the back of my head is almost like a shelf, it kind of goes up a little higher on the back of my head, and, but I always thought it looked like a staircase, you know what I mean? But after I got sober and started treating my depression, uh, I could look in the mirror and go, I'm not I'm not hideous. I'm not, I'm not this, it, it was my perception that I was this thing that I, that I wasn't. Talk about for you, what are some of the thoughts when you look at yourself in the mirror? Uh, I'm generally sort of disgusted, but now with enough awareness i'm aware that it's body dysmorphia i'm aware that i'm projecting my insecurities onto my weight and then i feel emotionally disgusted i feel like i must really just be corrupted inside there's something wrong with me that i'm literally seeing a distortion or i assume i hope it's a distortion because that's what I nice because you're giving yourself the one-two punch <laughs> <laughs> I like to be effective. Yeah, you're yeah. cleaning up after yourself. You're you're distorting yourself and then you're beating yourself up for distorting yourself. That's nice work. <laughs> that's that's almost up there with the 600 crunches. You are, if nothing, Jesse, you are thorough. <laughs> and for what it's worth, Jer uh, Jesse is a very handsome uh, guy. And I say that not to make you 
feel anything just to highlight how insidious thinking that we look monstrous or I don't know I just felt necessary to to mention that because it's uh, and I don't know if that's triggering to say something like that to, to somebody or if it's a healthy thing I thought about saying it should I say this should I not say it but so I just decided to because you're you're a good looking guy and I can hear what you're saying but it's just there are these voices that kind of say it's a lie I can't I can't why would it. I be lying to you I I don't know I don't know because you don't want to hurt my feelings I don't know I can't believe it though I understand. I understand. I know that feeling when a compliment comes your way and it's like your body's made of Teflon and you just think either they feel sorry for me or they don't know. Those are the two that I always go to. Well, they their, their bar must be very low if they're complimenting me. I think that's the worst thing is if I really believe that this person thinks I'm attractive or likes me, then they're clearly fucked up. <laughs> well, you know that already about me, but <laughs> uh so where did where did we leave off? Um you were doing all these crunches. Yeah. Um the eating disorder was manifesting itself with uh over exercising. Yeah, then my first year of college, uh sort of on my own, moved out of my parents' house and I just felt completely overwhelmed felt alone and I started restricting it was it was slow at first probably took about six months to really stick but within within the second half of my first year of college I lost another 30 pounds did you have any weight to lose to begin with uh well I'm five nine I was about 150 pounds at the beginning of that that year I was 120 pounds by the end of it which was the same weight I was when I was nine years old and my doctor told me I need to lose weight. And there was some sort of symmetry about that that felt right. But you were probably a foot and a half shorter when you were nine. Yes, it's I was probably... four foot 11, yeah. Wow. Five, nine, 120 pounds. Yeah, and that, it got worse. That's when uh, I... Were people saying anything to you? They had started to. My, my parents had started to comment, and I could not see it. I could not comprehend what they were saying so i got very defensive about it did you like how you looked or did you or did you always think you needed to lose more was there or ever a place where you got to where you were like i if i can just hold it right here oh no there's there was never there's enough. no bottom there's never enough uh so starting to my second year i start having trouble sleeping i'm feeling cold all the time uh i, I know something's wrong and so I go to the health services and I pick up some pamphlets that ask all these questions about eating disorders. I didn't recognize what eating disorders were, but I filled out the pamphlet and it clearly said, you have a problem, go seek help. And fortunately, there, there was an eating disorder support group at my college. Unfortunately, they wouldn't let me in because I was a guy. They, they turned me away at the door saying that my gender was uh, a threat to the other. What, what, what is that? What feelings come up as you tell me that? I'm angry now. At the time, I thought clearly I don't have a problem if you can turn me away. 
I'm hoping that that has changed. I would imagine it's changed now, don't you think? I, I assume so. I, I don't know. I, I've continually been just shocked by how irresponsible some of the facets of the mental health world are. There are some absolutely great therapists, but... Well, there are still people that don't think males can be sexually abused, uh, you know, so there, there's a long, there's a long way to go, um, with a lot of the prejudices that people have around gender and everything else that you can imagine. Um, I mean, clearly nothing compared to what some other people, but it doesn't matter. It's not, it's not a thing of relativity. It's it's your own it's your own thing so you get turned away then then what happens uh within a, a week i make an appointment with a nutritionist my logic was that if they can turn me away it's not emotional it must be just science hard data if i can collect the data i can implement the plan that'll make it work so i go to see a nutritionist uh, because you wanted to to get I, what was your goal my goal was not gaining weight I did not. I had never counted calories at that point. I was not really aware of weight at that point. Was it just exercise and food restriction? And I, w I wouldn't even have called it food restriction. To me, it was this must be healthy because we're supposed to diet, right? We're supposed to want to make these changes, and I can do it really well. So I, I should always and be doing you, it. And you didn't see yourself as emaciated. Oh, you no. saw yourself as still heavy. Well, once you start getting emaciated, your skin starts to sag. And so once I see sagging skin, I assume I still have more weight to lose. Wow. Wow. So go ahead. So I, uh, I made an appointment with a nutritionist. I go in in the morning, and within five or ten minutes of talking to her, I just started crying. Everything was overpowering me, and I didn't know how to deal with it. And um, she told me to wait right there, and she went and got a physician. And the physician came in and took some of my vitals. And she told me right there that I was anorexic, but the word meant nothing to me. I didn't understand. So um, she told me if I moved too much, I would die, that I would have a heart attack, that my body could not take it. And that was probably the most frightening moment of my life up until that point. You must have been shocked to hear that. Yeah, I could not have fathomed the idea that I would die. I was healthy. I was exercising. Clearly, I'm in good shape. But as she told me that, and I, my entire worldview changed. Help clarify for me why it was you were seeking help. Uh, I had, um, physically, things were wrong. Unavoidably, things were wrong. I was uh, tired all the time. I was cold all the time. I was having trouble focusing even in just conversation. Clearly something was wrong, okay. and I assumed there was some sort of science to getting it right. I see. So you thought it had nothing to do with your exercising and your diet? No, I assumed those were the, the good things. <laughs> That's kind of awful-some. That is. So then what happens? This doctor tells me I'm, I'm going to die, and I, I believe her. I'm, I'm frightened. So she goes and gets a psychiatrist and I was not a, I didn't really understand what that meant. She got a psychiatrist. He starts talking to me and he asks, asks if I want my parents involved. Absolutely. I want them involved. I want to get into a hospital. Clearly something's wrong. Let's fix it. 
And he starts talking about programs, and I don't understand what he means, but I just keep uh, assertively saying... He's talking about support groups and stuff like that? Inpatient. He wanted me inpatient by the end of the day. Yeah. So that was his goal. And he was going for a very specific program that he thought was the best. So he was calling for a bed, and they had me wait uh, in this health services place for, for about eight hours. I was around there all day, and they, they didn't feed me at all. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah. So my, my brother came and waited with me, and he kept offering to drive me to the hospital. And at some point around 5 o'clock, the doctor comes and gets me, the psychiatrist, and he says, your, your ride's here. Uh, and I see these two EMT guys coming from an ambulance. And I say, well, why would I need a ride? My, my brother's right here. It's just for insurance reasons. And so then they bring out a gurney. And they start strapping me into the gurney. And again, I ask, why am I being strapped in? And he says, don't worry. It's just for insurance reasons. And so while he's doing all this, he's handing paperwork to the EMTs. And they they drive me to a hospital. And they wheel me into a, a psych ward, unstrap me, and then leave. And at the end of that night, I'm in a general psych ward. No idea of why I'm there. And then a nurse comes up to me and asks if uh, she needs to take my belt away. I don't know why she would need to take my belt away. I'd never even thought of using it for anything. And you said, I'm more of a scarf person. <laughs> nice callback. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was, I don't know what happened that night. I That must have been baffling to you to, to not realize. So it still hasn't sunk in with you yet, even though you've met with a psychiatrist and they've strapped you to a gurney and you're in a psychiatric ER, it's still not really computing to you that this is an emotional issue that's manifesting itself in your inability to. Yeah, I did not comprehend. Uh, so the, they, they show me this small room with a locked bathroom where I'll be staying and a camera. And every 15 minutes, I have to respond to someone who says my name. And I, I, was, I was frightened. I was terrified. So my, my father, the big, strong man from the mental health world, comes in. And the, the doctor had basically screwed up the paperwork of trying to have me committed. Mm-hmm. So my father threatened to sue until they let me out. And once they let me out, I went home. And the next morning, I went to the hospital just for purely physical physical needs just to get my my body healthy and that period that i was in the hospital for about a week and a half in an, in an icu as i was supposed to be gaining weight and uh the nutritionist who who met with me when i first got there messed up and estimated my caloric intake at, at about half of what it should have been so i started losing more weight while i was in the hospital and the doctors were afraid of getting sued, so they were really just tiptoeing around the issue of emotional support, and they just wanted, wanted to get rid of me. By the end of that, that week and a half, they released me, sent me home, and told me I couldn't go to classes. I had to stay in my parents' house. I couldn't leave their yard. I couldn't exercise or do anything that was physically active. Otherwise, they would commit me again. So I'm out of school, back living in my parents' place, I get home the first night and my mother comes in to hug me and I just flipped out. Something about her contact was horrifying. I spent the rest of that night in a corner just crying, refusing to let anyone touch me because I, I couldn't feel the, their touch on my skin. I, I couldn't 
interact with my mother. I couldn't hug my mother because I was so frightened of what that felt like, of what it reminded me that I was, I still had skin, that I still had a problem. Wow. Over the next um, three months, I think I just started to go crazy. Uh, they told me to do nothing but stay at home and think about food and, uh, and eating. And they taught me how to count calories because I'd never done it before. And they wanted me to take a close intake of everything I ate. And once I realized how I could control it, once I realized that I could just skirt that line and everyone would pay attention to me because I might die, I got really fucking good at it. How so? I figured out exactly how many calories I could take in a day and maintain weight, um, but, but maintain a low weight. I went into the hospital at 120, I left at 114. I kept myself at 114. And then whenever there was a problem, a scare, the doctors got concerned, I would raise it two to three pounds. So then my next doctor's visit, there was progress. And I did that for about a year. So was the attention based around you gaining weight or losing weight and being back in crisis mode? For me, the attention was around, I'm going to die. As long as I can be in that state, then everyone, they want to be around me. They're going to listen to me. They're going to see me. You know, that's another really common thing that people fill out on surveys is, is they, people have a fantasy of having something horrible happen to them, getting in an accident or getting some type of illness so that they can be in a hospital and be taken care of and get attention. And in other words, I think so that their physical, the outward manifestation of their body matches their, their emotional pain, you know, so that they, they could have limbs that look like their soul feels. I imagine that kind of hits home for you. It, it it felt good in a way. It felt like I had finally found the thing that I'd been searching for because people could see it now. People would ask me if I was dying of cancer and I would I would feel good because they could see that I feel like... That I, something's wrong. Yeah. So I, uh, they basically kicked me out of school. And then once that happened, uh, my, my health insurance had to change so I could no longer see the doctors I've been seeing. Mm -hmm. And that created huge conflict, uh, with my parents. And about a year after my first diagnosis, I moved out away from home, try and get a job and try and start my, my adult life again. I was still about 120 pounds. Um, and within about three weeks of that, I didn't want to wake up. Just days got darker and darker. And I called a an eating disorder program to get in. I knew something was wrong and I didn't want to live. I wanted help. So I, I went to an... So you acknowledged at that point that you had a problem. There was no moment of epiphany. It was more like slowly being unable to deny there must be a problem begrudgingly giving in to all right let's let's just consider this yes right? yeah okay uh but once i gave in i had an identity and once i had an identity it felt like 
I'm really, I, I really know what I'm supposed to be doing now because I'm anorexic, so I should be restricting food. I should be thinking about my weight. And I, I entered an eating disorder program. I really wanted help, but there... Was it an inpatient? It was inpatient, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, probably about 12, 12 people. But their, their policy or their, their tactic was to essentially accuse you of things until you admitted something. And I've never induced vomiting. I don't hide food. Um, and they just kept accusing me, saying that clearly something's wrong because you're losing more weight. And every time I've gone to a, to a hospital, I lose more weight, which is not uncommon because your metabolism revs up. They start feeding you. You haven't been eating. Your metabolism starts speeding up again. And they get calorie intake wrong, so they start feeding you less than you should have. So they're making these mistakes and blaming me for them. And I was in this program for about two and a half weeks before my insurance ran out, and they told me I had to leave. And at that time, I was, I was still 120 pounds. So I, I went back home. I didn't know where else to go. I went back to my parents. And that was, uh, <laughs> that was when I basically just gave up. I decided to just, <laughs> fuck it, I'm failing at life. I started working whatever jobs I could find at a convenience store, um, as a, a line cook at some sort of restaurant, and I would take overnight shifts because they had me on a daily calorie intake, and if I don't sleep, then technically I guess it's not a day. So I... <laughs> <laughs> You are genius. You are brilliant. So I did that up until the point where uh, I crashed a car. I had fallen asleep at the wheel. And uh, the first thought I had when I woke up as the, the front is just wrapped around a tree and the steering wheel is pressed up against my, my clavicle and I can't move, my first thought is, fuck, I'm still alive. And I just started crying. I sat there trapped on the side of the road until someone came and found me. Yeah, I, it no longer mattered the idea of dying. It wasn't that foreign. It wasn't scary. It's like I was desensitized to it in a sense. I'm impressed with how in touch with your pain you are. Do you realize that, how in touch with your pain you are? Because a lot of people just kind of go numb and just build up plexiglass between their feelings and their consciousness, but you really seem to be aware of what you're, what you're feeling and experiencing. At least that you, it strikes me that way. Uh, I think about it a lot. I, I dwell on it. I don't know. I don't know how to take that. So there's some, some benefits to sitting and thinking about yourself. I always thought it just ruined my life, but turns out it can, uh, you can you can glean some insights from sitting and thinking about yourself. That's right. You too can glean some insight. Yeah. No, I, I it it just struck me as you were talking about it, you've had so many moments of um sad clarity where where um I don't know, I'm over explaining myself now. No, but, I think the moments is, is the important point because there are moments and then the addiction or the obsession comes right back in. My, my anorexia was the 
the closest thing to religion I ever had. It was ritualized. It was uh, this belief that if I just did this thing, everything would be okay. And those moments of clarities were like finally resurfacing after just a, a lifetime of drowning. But I was always sucked back in, back in, because if I if I really tried to recover, then I would have to face all that other shit, and. I couldn't deal. I couldn't deal with that. Well, clearly, you've done some type of work because you, being able to express the things you've expressed so far on the podcast, um, you've gotten in touch with your feelings in your past and the abandonment and the pain and the wanting to be seen and a lot of stuff that for some people it never becomes conscious. It just becomes an unconscious thing. They think they just need to win the softball game to be happy. You know what I mean? As opposed to just saying, Jesus Christ, my dad never fucking hugged me, and it hurts. Uh, yeah, I'll take credit for being aware, but it's, it's still sad. Um, I, don't, I don't fucking know how to take that. I I feel like recovery just sucks. You reach this point where you're not, your life isn't in danger, and you just have to be like everyone else. <laughs> I, was, I was special. Like, I was good at being... Deathly emaciated, yes. My lowest weight was 97 pounds, and I clutched to that. I was like, yes, I've beaten all the girls who are half my size. <laughs> wow, that makes sense, though. That makes sense. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a fucked up religion with the false god, but it, when you're worshiping at that altar, it feels so good because the brain releases these chemicals that talk about that your eyes just lit up when i when i said that talk talk about some of the sick moments of euphoria you know you said when you got down to 97 pounds what are some other sick moments of euphoria when you were really in your disease uh, i had a moment where i stepped out of the shower and for whatever reason i i truly saw my body and it reminded me of pictures of holocaust victims and it was elation. It was like, yeah, I'm, I've done it. I'm there. I'm still alive. I'm, and I'm emaciated. Just moments where I, I had no sex drive. I had no interest in anything other than doing exactly what I was doing. I was completely helpless. As a guy, I felt like I no longer had to worry about my anger because I was incapable of doing anything. And that way I must have reached some sort of truth. It was like a distorted view of Buddhism. Like I'm, I'll reach enlightenment if I could just tear everything down. <laughs> if I can be so lightheaded, I can't feel anything. And it feels like it. It feels when, oh, when, you, when you skip a meal or when you re go through a day without eating and you realize, yes. I did it. I did it. It's that spike of, I don't know what it is. The chemical cocktail is just beautiful. Nothing else compares to it. And it's so... It must be so validating when you're in your sickness. Yeah. yeah. I've heard people describe it as, I feel clean. I feel... It feels like victory. It feels like just order. Clean is a good way to describe it. I never thought about that. But yeah, all the, all the filth that I am is washed away. Just for one, one moment. Yeah. So then what happened? So I, um, I reached the point with my parents where they could not watch it happen anymore for all their faults. They, 
They're loving people, and they were watching their son just die. And so uh, it was expressed to me that I should leave. I should leave the state. I should get far away because they don't want to watch it anymore. And um, my therapist started threatening to commit me again because I was not maintaining weight. So I decided... And and were you getting help? Were you going to any support groups or anything? Were you... I was seeing a therapist. She wasn't particularly good. Um, She's a very nice woman. But I have always been able to identify what a therapist wants and then give them just enough of that Mm. to satisfy their needs. I know they want to help me. It's so fucked up. And yet I totally, totally understand and have caught myself doing the same thing. Because I'm afraid they're going to give me homework. I'm afraid they're going to want me to do something outside my comfort zone. I'm afraid it might work. So yeah, I I going to make me change religions. That's exactly what it's like. It's like you have to put on this false face because you know what the truth is. They don't understand, but I'll give them just enough to believe that they're helping me. So I can cling to my religion and maybe there's a way, a compromise between what they think I should do and what I can cling to to get get the good feelings from my brain. Yeah, and in my logic there were things I was unwilling to do. And like what? Like, um, they were th- like really gain weight. They would tell me you need to gain weight. And I would lay out a meticulous plan down to the calorie. And I would figure out how to, how to play this game of being able to satisfy the physicians with the number of calories, but then to still be able to have lapses and have emotional justifications for those lapses. You know, it just seems to me like they were completely missing the point, which is that your sickness is rooted in a lack of human connection. You know what I mean? That's, that is where, if you want to combat addiction, you combat addiction with human connection. You know, somebody said the other day in a support group, the, 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 and they were talking about like drugs or, you know, promiscuity or things where we, you know, we're gambling. The, the opposite of addiction isn't abstinence, it's connection. And it's like they were just, as you were describing what they're doing, I'm just thinking to myself, they're obsessed with the pimple. They're, they're not going into the deep, into the poor to see what it is that's cutting you off that makes you feel that you need to restrict your food. They're not getting to the root of it. Does that, does that ring? It does, but that was the beautiful thing about being emaciated is that they believed they had to stabilize me before they could address emotional issues. Oh, okay. So anytime I started reaching stabilization and I started feeling the emotional issues being identified... I just had to be emaciated again. Oh, I see. Boy, you can game the system, brother. Yeah. You really know. I mean, I I don't know because I've never I've never had an eating disorder, so I don't know what the procedure is when somebody's in crisis mode. But it just struck me as why why would you not send that person to a support group immediately to begin connecting to other people that they could relate to. Uh, I don't know the answer to that, and I've never heard it phrased that way. And it makes a lot of sense. My my last hospitalization, which uh, was involuntary, was five weeks, and they decided that I, I could not be trusted to eat with everyone else in the psych ward. So they would have me go sit in front of the nurse's station every time there was a meal, sit by myself, and 
due to budget cuts, they had combined general psych with the Alzheimer's ward. And so you have these old older people just with dementia wandering around, and they would literally walk by and grab food off of my plate and just keep walking. Nurses never did a thing. And all I learned from that experience was that I'm, I'm not supposed to eat with everyone else. I'm not supposed to be with everyone else. Man, you've been through some shit. You have been through some shit. I, yeah, I, I don't know what to make of it anymore. It's, I, I just feel like, I wonder sometimes if I was dealt a bad hand, and I know that's not the case. I've had so many opportunities in my life. So I wonder if maybe I'm just fucked up at the core, if it's genetics or something. I don't, I, I don't think you are sitting here talking to you. You're somebody that I've been able to connect to, that I've been able to, you know, I've interviewed some people where there's no possibility to connect, where there is, it's like hitting, um, like they're, they got a night outfit on, you know what I mean? Like they're wearing armor and I just clunk, clunk, clunk. But from the minute I gave you a hug when we met downstairs, um, I was like, this is a guy that I can talk to. This is a guy that I feel like I can connect to. This is a guy who has some self-awareness. So you are not any of those things. I, I, I just think you need brethren. I think you need comrades to walk this walk that you're going through. I think you just need some tools for, for how to cope. You're not fucked up. You're not beyond repair. I think... I think you're I think you're lonely probably. Do you feel lonely? Yeah. That that yeah, I I question whether or not I ever should have given up um anorexia because it was the closest thing to a relationship that I I feel like I've ever yeah, had. That makes perfect sense to me. I think you're scared of connecting really really connecting with people. Um because I know I am. I'm afraid of being overwhelmed by people's needs. I'm afraid of, of responsibility. I'm afraid of intimacy. Um, I love when I can connect with somebody. You know, one of the reasons why the podcast is safe to me is because it's a limited amount of time. It's an hour with somebody. And I don't have to live with them when the when the podcast is over so i can come in here and i can open up and i can be vulnerable my struggle is outside of the podcast with somebody in a support group maybe who is a little um high maintenance and that's where i find myself pulling away and being a fucking hermit and feeling like an asshole feeling like how you described like i'm like I'm just a bad person, like or, or I'm just so deeply flawed that I just wasn't meant to mingle with humanity. I don't worry so much about high maintenance people. I worry more that they would actually see me. So as long as I can keep things superficial, as long as I can control the the relationship, then they're never going to actually be able to reject me. Which is um, just makes me even lonelier. 
So what is the fear is that you'll be seen and rejected because they'll see what you don't like about yourself and they'll reach the same conclusion that you do, which is that you're not worthy of love. Yeah, it feels like that is the absolute logical conclusion. I can't escape it. And if I can't escape it, then they will see it. And if I can't be rejected for that. I have to reject them first. I have to somehow get them to end it for something else, some other reason. It's like throwing up smoke screens all the time. Like, no, look at this other little problem. You want to focus mm -hmm. on that one. You're good. You're good. You're lovable, Jesse. You're lovable. Does that make you super uncomfortable to hear me say that? It does. Yeah. I don't know how to receive love. It's hard. I know. I know. It's fucking hard. I can, re I can receive love for certain things, but for just being me, it just doesn't. It just doesn't compute. It just doesn't compute. So I, I, I feel you on that one. Are there times when you feel, do you ever feel self-love? Not love. I feel acceptance. Alleviation of hate. <laughs> <laughs> You've got the most brutal lawyer seated in your skull it is just got box you know those boxes that lawyers roll into on court cases it's just he is just armed with with shit to shoot down any love coming your way my client will settle for the <laughs> alleviation of self-hatred oh my god that is fantastic. That is fantastic. I, I'm i sure I have moments where I feel good about something I've done. I feel good and good for a moment, but it's just that. It's just a fleeting moment, and it feels like some sort of logic machine then spits out all the reasons not to believe that. Mm -hmm. You've got to look at this logic, L man. Like, that's the flaw. The flaw is the moment yeah. of self-acceptance, like... Oh, I let my guard down. Yeah. I let my logic down. You know, I raised my bar and the water seeped in. As long as I stick to what I know, none of this emotion will, will make me fall lower. And I think that's what I've been worried about probably the past 10 years is that I reach a stable point, but I know that I can go lower. So as long as I maintain just like passable life. Mm-hmm as long as I maintain okay, then it's an improvement from the depth of disparity where I was. So why come on the podcast and open up and get emotional? Because it sounds counter to, is it that you felt uh, here's a chance where I can be myself and be seen and not be rejected? That is absolutely part of it. The idea that I'm not alone. And it's also... Uh, I don't think that my suffering, I don't think I should suffer as much as I, I do. I shouldn't inflict this on myself. And I have I'd to say that's the understatement of the century. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I, I think I'm doing much better. And in doing much better, you spend a lot of time thinking about why it was so bad when it was bad. And in all of that, 
time that I spend thinking about these things, I spiral. I spiral into, well, I, I don't understand how anyone could feel this way. No one I've ever talked to feels this way. But that those are the moments of true connection is if I meet someone who sounds like they might understand just even a little bit, like when you were talking about other people feeling that they had felt or imagined hooks in their skin. Or slicing the fat off. I read so many of those in the, in the surveys. And so what has helped you get to a place now where you're, where you're better than you used to be? Uh, I think there was a defining moment. I was, um, I was in Oakland. I had gone there uh, fleeing, being committed by my therapist, and I joined an AmeriCorps program. And while I was with that program, uh, I was assaulted a couple times by students, which was confusing, but not as damaging as when I saw a, a teacher beat up a 14-year-old girl. And I was in this school, it was a middle school, and <laughs> this giant guy just grabbed a 14-year-old girl and slammed her against a locker until her back was bleeding. And I, I, I stepped out of the classroom I was in and I walked up to her, this guy. I was a hundred pounds. There was nothing I could do to stop him. Absolutely nothing. And no one else was doing anything. And I just felt completely fucking helpless. And so after that, someone came and spoke to the guy and he stopped and I walked around all night just trying to figure out what I could do. How could that happen? It's one thing for me to suffer. It's another thing for a kid, like a child, to suffer. They shouldn't be suffering. And I got into the habit of, of putting a whole bunch of weight into a backpack and just walking around for hours. So I had about 40 pounds in this backpack. And uh, that didn't have a, that was before cell phones, really. So I was just wandering around Oakland and I got lost and... I got on a bus and I had massive edema at the time. So I'm so low weight that my body's producing fluid to fill in the gaps. And I would wake up and my, my face would be swollen from fluid. But then throughout the day, it would all drain to my legs. I get on this bus, I'm going home and it's about midnight and I can't bend my knee when I'm stepping off the bus because the fluid is just so tight. And I've got 40 pounds of weight in a backpack. Oh my God. So I, I fall face first and uh, hit my chin on a curb and it tears open and the bus driver's asking me if I'm okay and I assure him, assure him everything's okay. I go home, I see at the flap of skin and I realize I've got to go to a hospital and I don't know anyone. I don't have a car. I don't know where to go. So I find my landlord. He drives into an ER 20 minutes away drops me off and then leaves. And there I am in this, in this ER, in a strange place, and this doctor is asking me about my weight and spraying some sort of fluid into my, my chin, and I can feel it hit the bone. And I, I just, I've never, I've never really pa fully passed out. I've come close, I've never fully passed out, but I felt like this light was kind of rising up to my eyes and everything was going black. And as this fluid is hitting my bone, I felt like in that moment, if I wanted to die, that was the time to do it. That was the time to just let go. And uh, the first, I closed my eyes and I, I tried to let go. And I, I saw this, this picture of my, my little sister. She's six years younger than me. And I just thought, if there's one thing I've ever been able to do in this world, it's 
have some sort of influence on her. And I, I must have done it right because she's, she's fucking awesome. And so I thought this is that's it. I've done something right. I opened my eyes and I th that morning I decided I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to to my parents' place. I'm gonna fly back home. I'm gonna leave this horrible city. I'm gonna get help. And uh, when I did that, when I came home, um, my physician essentially uh, sort of betrayed me. <laughs> I, I went. I voluntarily went to an ICU. For, I was there for a few days, regaining weight, and he was scared I was going to die. So he wanted to uh, alleviate the responsibility of that. Mm -hmm. So I woke up one morning with my physician sitting over me, saying, "I can't, I can't be responsible for you anymore. So I'm going to have have a, a psychiatrist come in and and talk to you, and we're going to have you committed." So this psychiatrist comes in. He was this tall Irish guy, and he came in holding two forms, one one pink and one green. And there was a social worker with him. And he said, here's the deal. Either you sign the green one, which is the voluntary admission, or I sign the pink one. And if you sign the green one, then you have a chance of getting out within a few days. But if not, we're going to commit you and you will be there until I say so. And then he left the paperwork with the social worker because he had to go and said, sign it if you, if you need to. So I signed the green one, which was supposed to have a chance of getting me out of there. But um, instead, I was in that program for five weeks until my insurance ran out. I was just in a general psych ward. Did it help at all? It did it only in that I had something else to fight against. Uh, they would forget to feed me f frequently because I had to have meals separately. And after a week of that, I started... Uh, combing through their their drawers to find continental peanut butter packets and stuff and I would eat those because I wanted to get out of there so much I want I want to get out of this place why didn't you just say hey you forgot to feed me I I did and the nurses would say oh it was it was a mistake we can't do anything about it because we've already sent everything down to the kitchen and they oh. had to order up a new one and so your hope was that you would gain enough weight to be released yeah so I went in there. The one like, time people are supposed to be helping you with that, they're fucking up. That's not the one time they fucked up. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that's what it was. It was continual fuck-ups. And it was just horrible. So th Think of people listening to this. Think about it. Like that story that you just heard Jesse share when when people are saying we yeah, we got a smaller government smaller government we gotta we gotta do this you know it comes at a price it comes at a price when you keep cutting health services for people that don't have money but go ahead so I I was there for five weeks and uh, again was released and went back home to my parents at this point I'm twenty one. And, uh, I don't know, I, I, I thought I was recovering, but it's just so miserable and lonely when you don't have the illusion that your disorder gives you like that illusion is so beautiful. That illusion, if I just lose weight, everything's okay. And when I realize it's not true, life is just dark and there's a period of very, very gray before something else, before human connection can take hold. That's been my experience. 
is the thing that brings the color back. But it's a true color is human connection. But it comes with a lot more complications. Um, well, I shouldn't say it comes with more complications. It it has its own issues, just like its own side effects. Um, sometimes being bored by somebody, sometimes feeling overwhelmed by somebody who's needy, you know, having to get up off your ass and go maybe talk to a group of people because somebody has asked you to come speak to this group of people. It's not as convenient as our as our disease can be sometimes. You know, we can't we can't get that rush. Um at least that's been my experience. I can't get that rush like pushing a button or opening a beer or logging on and looking at porn. I absolutely uh, relate to the boredom because as soon as someone bores me, I hear that other thing, that thing like, just come back, come, come back. back over here. Yeah. <laughs> we'll take care of you. Uh, I, I relapsed a few times after that, that last hospitalization. I, I refused to go back to programs. I stopped seeing therapists. Um, and it, there really wasn't a defining moment after that, other than at that point, when I'd had this this moment with about my little sister, I I started talking about it. I started talking to her about it, and she was 15 at the time, so she probably <laughs> could not handle the responsibility. But the uh, the slow realization that I could actively be part of her life, I could choose that. I could continue to do that. I could be a big brother, which. <laughs> gave me this sense of empowerment and responsibility that I, I can't keep fucking up. I have someone else I have to own up to. And the times when I would relapse were the times where I'd spend the most time away from family or friends and just be on my own. I was trying to finish school. I'd never, at that point, I'd never gotten a degree. And so I kept trying to go back. And every time I went back, I would relapse and I would just get lonely and depressed. And it was really long, hard road until about eight years ago, uh, I was physically stable and I've been physically stable ever since. And once I reached that point, it's a slowly being, becoming aware of the emotional shit. Mm -hmm. And so when was the last time you were in therapy or went to a support group or anything? Um, 13 years ago. And how is your, is your food pretty uh okay today and uh or do you feel like you're you're i mean you said it's been 13 years but do you feel like you've you're away from the danger line because you know as addicts we love to find out where the line is and then put our toe right on it and try to grow our toenail over it <laughs> uh i don't think i could be anorexic again but i probably qualify for some sort of non-purging bulimic behavior there's still binge eating and there's still compulsive, uh, obsessive exercise. Mm -hmm. uh, it's yeah, so it's manifested differently. Okay. Anything else you'd like to share? I, I think things have gotten better. I don't know if that's helpful for anyone else. It's a slow process and it sucks, but I actually have moments when I'm not miserable. And I'll take it. <laughs> I I feel you on that one. 
I oftentimes that feels like success at the end of the day when I I can say, you know, I felt about 15 minutes of vitality today. I'll take it. I'll take it. Today wasn't just a day of life is the bullshit between naps. Well, Jesse, thank you for coming and, and sharing your uh, your life and everything with us. Is there anything else before before we wrap up that you, you'd like to share? Uh, no. no. Thank you for having me on and thank you for doing the podcast. Well, it's it's my pleasure when I get to talk to people like you that come and really lay themselves open and share your inner life with us. Um, it's um, It means a lot to me. And I think a lot of people are going to feel this episode very, very deeply because uh, you really brought it, man. You brought it. Thank you. Many, many thanks to Jesse. And we recorded this uh, a while ago, and I checked in with him to see how he's doing. And he's he's doing well. Uh, and he actually has two podcasts. Uh, he has one called Committable, which just finished its first season. And it's about people who have been involuntarily committed to uh, psych wards. And then the other one is a family-friendly podcast, as he describes it, uh, called Super Questions. So we'll put links to that under the show notes. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Love Survey filled out by Matt Kay. And he writes, I love going outside with a cup of coffee in hand after a hot shower and feeling the wind blow across my skin. I love the feeling of excitement days before my son's birthday and Christmas. Oh, dude, I love that you love that. I fucking love seeing parents get excited about their kids excitement that is just so beautiful 
I love when my wife brings me a special dessert from the store. I love when my dog decides to lay her head on me because she doesn't want me to go somewhere without her, knowing while she is still catching some Z's. (laughs) Dogs are all about the positioning, man. They are so strategic in the direction they face when they lay down. Yeah. From the Ask Paul Anything survey, my chihuahua is my reason, asks, do you get emotional support from your dog? Uh, fuck yeah. (laughs) So much emotional support from Gracie. I'm obsessed with my dog. Do you have codependency with your pets? Yes, and we are actually attending a support group together. And, uh, no, uh, I don't know if I experience codependency. I don't think so because I have support other places as well. But when I am feeling stuck and down, sometimes I'll just lay down with my, with my dog and just love on her. And, uh, that I think is a healthy way of soothing. Uh, my husband accuses me of putting the dog's comfort over everyone else's. You know, I I can't answer that, um, whether that's true or not, but I think it would be good for you and your husband to expand that conversation. Any comments to make the podcast better? I love when you use humor, but maybe less penis slash masturbation jokes. Thank you for that. I do get self-conscious sometimes about uh, the forms that my humor attempts take in the podcast, but, you know, I can second-guess myself into a nap like nobody's business. Flabbergasted asks, do you regret not having kids? A resounding no. I do not regret it. Um, Do you have any comments to make the podcast better? I'd love to see a sexism experience questionnaire for you to read out loud and the male population to react and realize how much female presenting people go through still nowadays in 2021. I love that idea. And what I would love would be if you guys would send me questions you would like on that survey. Uh, Because, I don't know, I just kind of have the feeling that um, I, I have blind spots as to what would be a good question uh, to ask. And also the racism survey that we have, if there are uh, questions that you would like asked on that survey that haven't been included there, uh, send me those suggestions uh, as well. This is from the Happy Moment survey filled out by Mia, and she writes, Today I woke up with a crushing headache, feeling absolutely miserable and depressed. The headache and depression had been building up for days. After coming home in the early afternoon, I allowed myself to lie on the sofa with my boyfriend and cats for a solid hour doing nothing but cuddling. Then we took a nap of an hour and a half, and I woke up to my cat pushing his little face into mine, purring incredibly loudly. On my way to my boxing studio, I started beating myself up about being a lazy fuck and how I will never finish my graduate degree if I do nothing but sleep. Then... I realized my headache was gone and that my limbs didn't feel like lead. And then I was looking forward to getting exercise. And then I thought about you, Paul, and how you always tell us not to beat ourselves up about needing rest. Thank you for all of your wise words. You really do make a difference. That means a lot to me. It feels really good to read that. 
It is hard to silence that mean voice in our heads. You talking about me? Oh my God, mean DJ voice. We haven't heard from you in a long, long time. Well, buddy, I've been I've been busy rocking the quad cities while you've been busy being a piece of shit. All right, I think we've heard enough from you. This is Ask Paul Anything, filled out by Lucky Mom. And uh, she writes, I have a 15-year-old son who had a medical condition until he was about 10, and it has to do with his bowels. Um, When I discovered your podcast and first heard you talk about covert incest, my son had just reached about a year of remission, which would thankfully become permanent. He was still an affectionate, relatively uninhibited 11-year-old at that point, and I knew it wasn't long before puberty would arrive and change that. I was trying to enjoy the last days of snuggling on the couch, watching movies, or being able to get a big hug after a few days apart. But upon hearing the way you describe your mother being too involved with your body, I became panicked that my involvement with his body had been somehow inappropriate, and I may have damaged him irrevocably. Almost immediately, I stopped touching him affectionately, running fingers through his hair, spontaneously hugging him, etc. Even though he'd never shown signs of feeling uncomfortable with those gestures, and often made the same kinds of gestures towards me, I just thought it might be better for him to feel that there was a boundary he controlled as much as it hurt me to withhold most of those affections. Cut to almost five years later, and I can see now I was overreacting. I'd not been inappropriate with him. I was just hyper-aware of how horrible his gastro experience had been, and I mistrusted my instincts for a bit. As the adult child of a mean alcoholic father and ex-spouse of an addict, I've struggled all my life with extreme codependency and rejection-sensitive dysphoria. Intellectually, I know I handled my son's medical and personal needs with sensitivity and discretion. It's just that my own preoccupation with being good and preventing him from feeling as unloved as I always have is always intertwined in my parenting in ways I have to keep an eye on. It's not his job to help me feel like a good person or to be exhibit A of my worthiness. His condition is not my fault. His permanent re Mission is not my triumph. I try not to regret the way any of this unfolded. My son is a lovely, decent, insightful teenager. While he is conventionally cisgendered, currently identifies as straight, and presents as a pretty typical athlete and gamer boy, his closest friends are all non-binary or gender-fluid and neurodivergent, and they all seem to be super comfortable with and respectful of each other's differences. Whatever damage I did or didn't do, he seems to have an instinct for acceptance that is a natural part of who he is, and that makes me really proud. I do believe boys need and deserve physical affection, just like everyone else. They also need bodily autonomy and a sense of sexual safety, because society still primarily primarily pushes a version of masculinity that is unemotional and physically aggressive. They are already at a disadvantage in this regard, and there is not really a model of physical affection that is healthy and nurturing for boys. Finally, my questions. Thinking about your experience with your mother 
and the wonderful counterexample of your relationship with men in your support groups, how do you think it might be possible for parents to be physically affectionate with their boys in ways that are both healing and safe? As, as somebody who is not a parent, that's a difficult question for me to answer. But I can tell you, based on my experience as a child and the child of a father who was distant and a mother who was invasive and controlling and critical and then sometimes gushing with praise, um, it's fucking complicated. But, you know, there was a sense of infantilizing and possessiveness to her affection that I couldn't see at the time. And I would just kind of shut down. You know, one of the things that she would do is she would take my face in her hands and she would, you know, call me mom's cutest and mom's rose and all this other stuff. And and then at the end of it, she would sometimes say, but you're rotten to the core. And I would just be shut down kind of through the whole thing and just be like, this makes her happy. You know, I guess this is what sons do. Um, just kind of numb to it. It's hard to know what it would have felt like because I didn't feel a sense of safety. I felt the sense of my basic needs being taken care of. I never worried about, you know, us being homeless or not having money for food. And I'm super, super grateful for that because I know a lot of people didn't get to experience that sense of safety, but I did not feel emotionally safe in my house. And if you had asked me when I was a kid, do you feel safe in your house? I would have said yes. And I think it because I just compartmentalized it. Um, I can see now from the examples of parents being appropriately affectionate with their kids that there is a sense of them being seen rather than being possessed by that parent. And, you know, the mind fuck of somebody luring you in with all this praise and then saying something like you're rotten to the core after it, uh, you know, obviously that's not good. So uh, the other thing I would add is, and you seem to have a really good sense of this is pick up on the cues of your child. How do they react? You know, if my mother had done that, she would have said, wow, this kid is shut down and he does not seem to enjoy it. But my mom had nothing when she was growing up in terms of a role model. Her mother was really cold and her father abandoned them. So, you know, it's... It's really hard to learn in a vacuum. Uh, do you wish your mother had left you alone altogether, or can you imagine any version of affection from her that could have been healthy for you? Yeah, you know, I, I sometimes imagine uh, a hug that felt nurturing rather than possessive. Um gentleness my mom was was while she could be very affectionate with her words um 
physically, uh, there was not a gentleness to her. It was, um, my mom was not somebody who had a filter. And you never knew, even when there was praise coming out of her mouth, when it was going to turn on a dime and it would turn into a criticism. So uh, it was a mindfuck. It was a mindfuck. Um, but thank you for those questions. Those are, those are great, great questions and complicated, complicated fucking subject matter. My, uh, this is an awful moment filled out by Lynn, and she writes, My brother was visiting along with my mom and commented on all of my meds. I was said that I was getting pretty good at taking them. I could take eight or nine in one gulp of water. My brother then said, Well, I can do about 30 at once. <laughs> my mom was not happy with us laughing at that. That would be hard to laugh at that as a parent. And thank God for humor and recovery. Oh, fuck. I don't know where I'd be without it. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by uh, a guy who refers to himself as Charlie. He identifies as straight. He's in his 20s, was raised, according to him, in a stable and safe environment. He was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. He writes, my cousin molested me when I was very young. We still have a relationship. No one in my family knows about it except me and I presume her. I don't think she knows I remember, but it has had a profound effect on my sexual preferences. I don't know if it's some weird take on the Oedipus complex, but I generally gravitate towards women with the likeness of her. I only came to the realization that I was abused slash molested when I was 19. It's a shameful burden that I carry into every relationship. This has been the first and hopefully only repressed memory that surfaced in my life. He is not sure if he's been physically or emotionally abused. Any positive experiences with abusers? I think my abuser thought I was too young to remember, so I went on with my childhood thinking what happened to me was normal. Darkest thoughts, trying heroin, darkest secrets, being attracted to women with the likeness of my cousin. I believe this was due to being molested by her at a very young age, which twisted how I view attractiveness. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being dominated by my partner, which I honestly still think is hot. I'd also like to be hurt. Scratches, bites, cuts, etc. I really have no shame in sharing that. A kink is a kink. High five to that, buddy. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd ask my cousin, remember when you molested me? Why did you do that? I could never ask that question because it did ruin our relationship and both of our lives. What, if anything, do you wish for? A happy and fulfilled life so I can be content when I die. I'm not religious or anything. I just want to go out thinking, yep, I'm good. Have you shared these things with others? Only one person, and I was absolutely plastered. He told me he'd take that shit to the grave. How do you feel after writing these things down? This was cathartic, but a waste of time. I have work to do. It's interesting that something could be cathartic and a waste of time. Uh, anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Sucks, right? Question mark. Well, thank you for sharing that, and I'm, uh, 
I'm sorry that uh, that that happened to you and that you're in a place where you don't feel comfortable uh, opening up to, to someone. But, you know, um, whatever is working for you to manage your life and, and be the person you want to be and live the life you want to live, you know, um, sending you sending you love because my instinct is to say go get help open up because I think it can have a positive effect but I don't know you know for some people it may not work for them to open up um, I just can't imagine it not if it's to the right person slash people This is from the love survey filled out by Feline Friend, and she writes, I love fireflies and birds. I love feeling the warmth of the sun, even if it's hot and humid. I love the scents of lilac, rosemary, and ginger. I love the soft purr of my cat when she crouches on my chest and drools on me. I love it when the one-year-old I nanny for smiles her big, happy, loving smile at me. It makes me feel valued and connected. I love the look in my boyfriend's eyes when he gets really excited about something. I love the taste of creamy desserts and lattes. I love it when a friend reaches out to share something, no matter how silly, irrelevant, or random. I love it when strangers are warm and kind. I love being near a big lake or mountain or waterfall and feeling small. I love plants and fungi. I love cooking myself a healthy meal. I love learning, and I learn a lot listening to this podcast. I also love myself, which took a lot of work, but I think I finally arrived. Ah, those are awesome. Self-love is so, for a lot of us, I'll just speak for myself, so, so difficult and so two steps forward, one step back, but it can really make the ability to feel peace in the middle of a hurricane possible. And finally, this is from the back in time slash in the moment survey filled out by Lucifer. And she writes, I would go back to all the moments in my teens and 20s where I was waiting to do something until it was the quote perfect time and tell myself that perfect time does not exist. You don't have to know everything before you begin. And your body, face, hair, whatever you're waiting on and obsessing over does not have to be perfect in order for you to go out and experience the world. Don't wait until you lose that extra pound or buy the perfect outfit to go out with your friends. You're missing it. People remember, people will remember how you made them feel and the fun that you had, not the details of your bad hair day. You know enough and have enough and are enough right now so stop waiting holy shit do I fucking love that one god it's amazing how fear of failure can just keep us stuck even you know paralyze us but it's so scary the unknown I don't know about you guys but the unknown I never imagine it or rarely imagine it as a pleasant surprise. It's always dirty underwear in a tent, fending off people with a butter knife. 
And that's the image I want to leave you with. If you're out there and you're feeling stuck, there's help everywhere. Everywhere. It may not be easy to find at first, but you will eventually find it. My favorite people in the world are seekers. So just keep seeking. And remember that you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely